0: We are leaning into the book of Revelation. Everybody say Revelation. But we're leaning into the book of Revelation uh, for the next few weeks because in its opening pages are these two statements. First of all, blessed are those who read, hear, and heed these words. Blessed are those who read, hear, and heed. Come on, say it with me, please. Read, hear, and heed. Uh, we are, by the way, some of you know we we are we do uh, broadcast this thing live and with social media it becomes much more easy we don't need to have all kinds of cameras and power you know expensive television equipment but i do occasionally get a message from people i got one from bakersfield last week that said i watch you every week but i refuse to repeat anything (laughs) and uh that's all right that's okay you don't have to uh, I, it's just sometimes helpful for you to hear so you say something and for others to hear you. It's all about reinforcement. Blessed are those who read, hear, and heed these words. That means we someone needs to read them out loud and people need to hear them. And then we don't reading and hearing never really gets us very far. There's no such thing as obedience that's only two-thirds. Right? right? It's not just the reading and the, and the hearing. It's the heeding. Yeah. Okay? So heed these words. But the, there's a promise here. Look at that, babe, another one right that we're bl- <laughs> you might find there's several promises attached to prom- uh, commandments um we'll go over that later uh uh, uh, uh <laughs> yeah 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 the first one is about parents and anyway um yeah how many want to be blessed well, then we're going to read, here and heed these words, and we expect blessing. How many expect it? I mean, I expect a measurable difference. And then the next statement, which is repeated oft, especially in the first three chapters, is this. If you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That means that he, the Spirit has something to say, and when we'll look at this, the Spirit has something to say to Seven literal historical churches. But what he had to say to them, he was saying to all of them and to all the churches. So what he has to say to them, he is also saying to us. He is speaking. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. He is speaking to us. We've read that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is, is from and about Jesus himself. <laughs> Whoa. Whew. That's a big deal. But in this book, John, his beloved disciple, John describes his vision of the exalted Christ who has come to a message for these seven churches. And there would be blessing on them. It was, And again, remember that even in the literature aspect, there is a message sent to each church, but all the churches read each message. Okay, so just from the literary evidence, we understand that this is for everybody to see. Okay, but then from the, the the uh, you might say the mystical aspect, not allegorical, but the spiritual thing is that because he speaks of the angels of the churches and these seven churches, that especially in Revelation, this idea of seven speaks of fullness or completeness. So this really is something he has to say to all of his church so we're going to listen to what the spirit has to say and we're going to be blessed by it Amen. this morning we're going to pick up at the second of those seven churches and this is the church in smyrna yeah so we're turn with me in your bibles to the book of revelation if you haven't already and we're in revelation chapter two it is a shorter passage than uh formerly than the Ephesus passage. Um, and here it is. Let me read it in its entirety, and then we'll the, the text itself, once again, that will be our outline. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Oh boy, it's hard to get past the, the, the stuff in Revelation without just pausing and going, wow, forgive me. I, I, I know it's not in my notes, but to the angel of the church, we are not alone. I don't I don't really understand what that means, but that but as far as heaven is concerned, and doesn't you know Jesus. He never did really explain everything he had to say. Did you didn't notice that about him? He'd just say, "If you don't understand it, that's on you," and then he'd walk away. He'd say, "Seed, soil, weeds," and then walk away. And people are like, "What?" <laughs> and then he'd just say, oh, "I figured it out, right?" But here he doesn't bother explaining to us that there is an angel for a church. Somehow there are angel ambassadors, representatives that, and 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 heaven identifies them. So 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 closely that to speak to this angel is to speak to the church now i know again just in case anybody watching or listening thinks uh hey uh dr dab yeah uh you know that's also the word uh, that could just be messenger that could just be a human messenger i'm well aware except for that nowhere in revelation is the word does the angel mean anything other than angel as a matter of fact most of the time it means oh, oh, angel like that kind of angel not sweet cherub next to your crib angel <laughs> Oh, I'm still reading. Uh, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. <laughs> Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested. And you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. Some of you just need to scowl a little bit right now, like this. Be faithful until death. Look to the storm and say, do your worst, for I will do mine. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Hmm? Not you. Yeah, this will be exciting. Do not fear. Would you all say it out loud with me, please? Hey, play along with me, will you? You watching. Now, you too, you say it. Do not fear. Let's see if they got into I'll see if I get a message. Watch them just unfollow us. Flip. Um. <laughs> Do not fear. This is... This is the thrust of this morning's message to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear. And if it's the the message to them, it's actually the message of the entire book of Revelation. Hallelujah. But it's the message to you this morning. I want you to say it out loud so you remember it. Say, "Do do not fear. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, write this. Now, Smyrna was a large city. It was a wealthy city. It was a proud city. It was 35 miles north of Ephesus. It competed with Ephesus in its own mind for being the most important place. It was there was about eleven cities that competed for, let's say, the, the title, the, the capital, the epitome of being emperor worship. Ephesus claimed that they were, but Smyrna actually won. Smyrna was the place for emperor worship. Smyrna actually also had a large population, a large Jewish population was present in Smyrna as well. And it, that Jewish population was hostile to Christians. Hostile. Now, in case anybody, because back in my mind I hear, hey, wait a minute, is anybody going to think we're being anti Semitic if we mention hostile Jews or the Jews were being mean? The guy who wrote this was a Jew. <laughs> Simmer down. Jesus, Jew, John, Jew, they're talking about Jews. This isn't about Jew, okay, just. Was that too far? Because I can never tell. Indicators on people watching us, and the screen just went <laughs> boom. <blow>. Um, <coughs> <coughs> so this is not a this is just history. This is truth, not anti-Semitism. Okay, we're everybody's great, but that's what was happening in Smyrna. You know the, what was happening in Smyrna. So to this place, we hear this: the first and the last, who the one who was dead and has come to life, says this. Each of the messages to the churches. And if you look back, Ephesus has the same. Each of the messages to the churches will address the church and then reintroduce the speaker. Even though John already has in chapter 1. He's told us who's talking. The one who holds the stars in his hands. The one who walks among the seven lampstands. Every time I say that, I get a Mufasa feeling. Everybody say he's among the lampstands. He loves the lampstands. That's where he is. He's present. We are not alone. He's among us he's already said all that, but now he identifies himself again. He reminds them who's talking. But here's the thing. Each of these introductions really stands alone to us as, a, as a, our response is veneration and adoration and awe and wonder. Each of them stand alone. Just for him to say, hey, I'm the first and the last. Okay, Alpha and Omega. I mean, he's, he's the first and the last and everything in between. He's the question. He's the answer. He's everything. Already we just could stop all day and just honor him for that. Amen. Okay? And then he was the one who he was dead but now he's alive. Whoa, all of that is, is wonderful in and of itself. But each of these specific introductions actually plays into <laughs> um, John is a wonderful guy to write with depth. So Each of these introductions plays into or you might say dovetails or connects with what Jesus is speaking to that church. Some commentators will go as far as to say that, that Smyrna actually thought called itself the first it was the first they they were the you know first in terms of emperor worship first in terms of importance but jesus says i'm the first and and the last but then he says i i was dead but now i'm alive and that's going to matter it's going to matter a big deal to the church in smyrna because of what they're about to face they need to know the one who's talking to them has already walked through what they're about to He says again in verse 9, I know. I pause again to honor this statement and to remind us, friends, that just like the speaker, Jesus, he knew Ephesus. But he now, And now he tells Smyrna, and I know you too. And friends, if he knew the church at Ephesus and he knew the church in Smyrna, he knows the church in Vancouver, he knows the church at Heritage. He knows us. He knows us. I'm looking over at my friend, Ed, and I wanted to say it again. Ed, he knows your, your, your effort at hospitality. Worship team, he knows your, your, your discipline and your late nights and your early mornings and your, and your practicing. Children's workers, my goodness, he knows what you're doing. He knows your emphasis. He knows your passion. You know, he knows that, that the, 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 you, you get rarely celebrated because you don't have a lot of spotlights. There's not a lot of LED lights on the children's ministry. But he knows. He knows. Hey, listen, families, families. He knows. Lesson Sally. He knows how many years, how many months of the first of the month he has. You have got all of the communion supplies ready. He knows. He knows. I, I, I don't have time for this. Let's have some. <laughs> you an usher over here to deal with the staffer. (laughs) This is my friend Bill Darlington over there who has served at different places and different times and different churches and schools. And, you know, you move around a little bit and you do a few things and you find yourself in a place where people don't know you as well. And it's tempting, and he hasn't said this to me, but it's tempting to start to question your sense of value when people don't know you or don't know where you've been or what you've done. But here it is. Yeah, that Charlie? Was that Charlie's voice I heard? There it is. See, now there's a guy who's been around and done some things. Yeah, because he knows he has. Been around and done some things. Yeah, okay, you don't say amen if you don't mean to talk about you, Barn, because I know. Been around and done some things. Worked hard and served and sweat and gave. Sometimes felt a little taken advantage of. Here is Jesus saying, He looks right in your eyeballs and says, "I know, I know, I know." People show up early to pray, sneak in, sneak in this building, sneak out of this building with keys and gates, and pray and intercede. You don't even know, but the Lord says, "I know, I know." He knows them. He sees them watching them he's watching us he's watching us let that be a source of great comfort and reverence hope to you this morning now what he says is this i know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation and poverty. Persecution in Smyrna was intense. The emperor cult there was strong. As I've already said, Smyrna claimed itself a a, a chief city of emperor worship. They celebrated how much they did. And it was so strong there. Furthermore, Domitian, the, the Roman ruler Domitian, he issued an edict when he did and he declared emperor worship mandatory for the inhabitants of the Roman Empire. And it beca- this is about in the 90s, okay, uh, AD 90. And in there, in there, in that season. It became compulsory for every Roman citizen to participate, to comply with emperor worship on penalty of death. You complied or died. Now, you say, what did emperor worship look like? Well, here's the catch. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard. I'm not going to do a very good job explaining this this morning, hoping that people catch this. It was it was not hard to comply. It was it felt it might have even felt like it's no big deal to deny Christ and do that. It's not a big that didn't really it wasn't earth changing. They didn't have to do much. All they had. Listen, all they had to do was once a year, once a year, you had to take a little pinch of incense and burn it on the altar of a Godhead to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Easy peasy. Caesar is Lord. You didn't have to sell your house, or it wasn't like, again, I'm not trying to wobble off track here, but it wasn't like when the uh, when Islam came in and you had to do all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was it was be easy, just a little pinch. It's amazing how easy the enemy will make idolatry. In fact, to many of Roman citizens, such an act was probably considered more just an expression of political loyalty than it was any kind of real worship. Nobody really took it all that seriously. All they had to do, little pinch, Caesar is Lord. And yet, most Christians refused to do it. And when Domitian made that edict about emperor worship, he exempted the Jews he said, all Roman citizens have to do the little pinch and the little Caesar, except for Jews. They don't have to. Fine. And there's history to that and reasons for it. But what you need to understand is the Jews were exempt, and the Jews at the time did not want that same liberty extended to the followers of the way, this sect, Christianity. So the Jews actually lobbied with Rome against them to make sure that Christians were not afforded that luxury. They conspired specifically in Smyrna, but also around the, 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 the empire. You need to catch this. The Jewish community in Smyrna conspired with Rome against the Christians so that they, could, they were not exempt from this, but had to do it. They conspired with Rome to oppress Christians. Perhaps nowhere was life for a Christian more perilous than in this city, Smyrna. As such, to be a Christian in Smyrna was to be persecuted on every side and would have been exceedingly difficult in every area, including any kind of economic benefit. So when, they, when the Lord says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, that's not metaphor. He literally meant that those the people in that city were struggling to survive. They had nothing materially. Because of the persecution involved. And yet he said, but you are rich. This whole letter to Smyrna has to do with with, uh, the the contrast between what is happening in the natural, but is more real in in the spiritual realm and in the eternal realm. you are rich your true state in spite of your oppression you are blessed they were full they were joyful they were spiritually vibrant and they were powerful they were unstoppable and jesus shows them this contrast between their temporary circumstance and their eternal status and then it says the lord says i also know i know the blasphemy by those who say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan the jewish population slandered christians with slurs that demeaned and demoralized and even demonized them. The Jews who rejected Christ allied themselves with Rome. And then here's the thing. They still referred to themselves as Jews or as the synagogue of the Lord, the assembly of God, <laughs> That's what they called themselves. Okay. That's a number, they started that in number 16.3. You can see that. They said, we're the, we're the assembly of the Lord. We're the synagogue of the Lord. And at the time, ironically, the, the first time they called themselves that, they weren't. <laughs> they were rebelling against Moses, okay? They were acting contrary to the will of God. But they still called themselves that. But in what, but in what they were doing, and partnering with Rome and oppressing Christ, they were actually partnering with Satan. Now, if that sounds harsh, remember, Jesus is the one who's talking. Jesus is saying, they're calling themselves synagogue of the lord but they're not they are the synagogue of satan now and then he says they 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 are slandering here's the thing here's the contrast they're slandering you but they're really lying about themselves now this idea of synagogue of satan like i said a moment ago that uh, biblical theo- biblical theology What it does is, as, as the Bible unfolds, ideas and concepts become more and more clear. They don't evolve. They don't change their meaning. Jesus Christ is still Lord. Men and women are still men and women. Babies are still babies. I don't need to wobble off here, but you understand what I'm saying. People that say, oh, the Bible evolves. No, it does not. It does become more clear, but the clarity the clarity, BT-dubs, the clarity always comes, makes Jesus Christ more central. But here it is. Revelation recognizes a, perhaps more than any of the texts so far. I mean, it doesn't do any disservice to the Gospels. It, it, the partnership with the Gospel is right there. But Revelation recognizes this, my friends. The devil, Satan, is real. He is malicious. He is a powerful presence who is active, who has influence, and who is hostile to the church. If you read any paperback or any Facebook Jesus post that says otherwise, they are wrong. And they are doing you and themselves a disfavor. Because Jesus is the one who said, oh, in Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan is there. There's people who are partnering with Satan to do damage to the church. Revelation affirms that the church is still in the heat of a real war with a real enemy. But the enemy is not human beings, but Satan himself. We are not, in other words, not even this. Even though the Romans were were oppressing them and the Jewish people were being disloyal and unkind, the Lord doesn't call those people the enemy. He recognizes that they're partnering with the enemy. devil's real. But... Verse 10, do not fear. Come on, say it out loud with me. Do not fear. This is the first and the main imperative in the passage. This is the message to the church at Smyrna. In fact, Jesus has no correction for them. He has no complaint toward them. He says this only to them, do not fear. He says it to Smyrna, and because all, everybody's reading it, he says it to all the churches. And if he says it to all the churches, he says it to this church. He says it to you today. He says it to your family today. Do not fear. This is, the, do not fear is the refrain of heaven to all who hope in Christ. It was the constant refrain of Christ to his followers, whether they were facing darkness or disease or death itself, Jesus would say, do not fear. It is the first word of the gospel. Hmm? Yes, the women come to a tomb, and they're seeking the living among the dead. And they go inside that trophy to death. They go inside that icon of, hum- of humanity's greatest fears. And in it, they find it empty, save for an angel that says these words, do not fear. The first words shouted from an empty tomb, the first message of an empty tomb is this, do not fear. Let all the earth hear that there's an empty tomb with the words forever etched on its walls, that wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you look, whatever life looks like, do not fear. Jesus Christ is alive. And here he says it again to his church. He says, do not fear. Fear is imagining the future without the faithfulness and the goodness and the promise and the power of God. It entertains the fear from the perspective of hell. What does the future look like if hell's in charge without hope? Fear is what the horizon looks like if there is no God. As such, fear is one of the greatest lies and the most powerfully destructive force to our faith, but because He lives, we can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Do not fear, Jesus says. What you are about to suffer. He's talking to this church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna would enter a season of suffering or intense persecution. Now you got to be careful here. How you think? Hmm, what does this mean? Does this mean everybody's about to? No, but we understand that they were, and we're to learn from what he said to them about what they were going to experience. It it, it certainly means that persecution is possible for any believer or any church at any time. But I don't want you to read this verse and say, oh, no, something's about to happen to me for 10 days. Simmer down. Listen and understand we're learning, we are extracting principles here. The church of Smyrna was about to enter into a time of persecution, but they would not do so alone. They would do so as those who bear the name of Christ and those whose kingdom is not of this world. And though what they face would be difficult, Christ says, even against this, whatever you're about to face, do not fear. This was a prophetic word to them, and it was meant to strengthen them. They would suffer. Any of us might but none of us should fear. Behold, Jesus says, the devil, look to where he places the blame here. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you, might be, so that you will be tested. To be tested simply means to be proven. To, it literally means to, you will have opportunity to display what you are really made of. Let's see what comes out of the teabag. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Again, friends, Revelation makes clear the devil's vitriol and violence toward the church. Do, do not, don't do be bewildered as to why Christians are slandered or maligned or attacked, but neither should you fear. He says, you'll have tribulation for 10 days. In other words, what was coming to the church in Smyrna wasn't going to last forever. It would be for a very specific season. Everybody get your biggest smile on because I'm going to wax out into an area that makes makes some people happy and some people unhappy. Almost every number in Revelation is a metaphor. Unless it is specific. Well, how do you know? Well, he said seven churches and then he named each one. So those are seven specific churches. And yet, even those seven churches, we understand, are speak metaphorically, spiritually, to all the churches. But then when the, when the writer goes into a thousand years or ten years or ten days or seven this, those are all, we sh- you should be very careful not to get your ruler out and to measure those out as, as literal numbers. He's trying to communicate an idea. So ten days doesn't mean, you know, a week and a half. It meant... A, 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 a specific, measured, but limited season of time. If he would have said 1,000 years or 100 days or something, they would have thought, or seven years, they could have thought, okay, we're, we are really in for a long season. But 10 days meant it's going to be brief. It's going to be intense, but it's going to be cut off. So just know. See, that was to encourage them. Amen. It, that, and that's all really we know. You think, well, I wonder what that really means. It really means a limited, specific amount of time. That's it. You're going to be cast into prison. But back then, prison wasn't punitive. It was, the, it was just a, a primer for death. Which is why Jesus says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus knew that the church in Smyrna was about to face martyrdom. But what he says to them is be faithful. Remain true. Hold fast to your confession. Keep on being and doing what is right, even if it means death, because Christ will give you the crown of life. That's not a royal crown. That's a laurel wreath. That's a victor's crown. (laughs) Hallelujah. This is why he reminded them that he was the one who had died, but who was alive forevermore. He says to those to be faithful to death because what, because what they, they can look forward to, what they can look forward to is the very life that he lives now. Amen. He who has, an to hear, who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking. Then he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Mm-hmm. Second death, yeah. In other words, you some of you are going to face a the the the, the death that the, that involves your mortality, your temporary life. But there's a second one, and you have no fear of that one. You say, "What do you mean, second one?" Revel- the second death is actually explained in the text, Revelation chapter twenty, verses fourteen and fifteen. Here's what it says: Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Doesn't take a lot of homework there. This is the second death. What's the second death? This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the real and eternal death. But to those who remain faithful to Christ, they have no fear, no concern. You will not be hurt, he says, by the second death. Therefore, to Smyrna and to every church, the Lord says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Friends, here's the deal. Here's what I, how I'd like to encourage you just as we close this morning. I want to, if I can bring this, the message of Smyrna to bear upon heritage. And uh, it's, it's going to sound a little different. But uh, here's the deal. Uh, do not fear literally means embrace martyrdom. Hey, Dab, what do you mean by that? Well, the command not to fear is an, is an invitation, an incentive, an imperative to embrace martyrdom. But you need to understand that, that martyrdom is not you and me hoping for death or seeking out ways to suffer. Oh, I'm looking for, I'm looking to, I'm going to go, I'm going to sell everything and not pay my bills and go live in a cardboard box for Jesus. That's not martyrdom. That's (laughs) dumb Martyrdom, embracing martyrdom means that I am, that means you need to live for Christ, unafraid of death or even of loss. I'm living for Christ without fear of anything. I'm, even, I'm not even going to pinch. I'm not even going to allow a pinch of compromise. Maternity means that we live for Christ faithfully, that we never deny him. We will burn no incense to Caesar, whatever form that takes. We do not submit to threat, nor do we even surrender to ease. We do not deny Christ in public. We do not deny Christ in private. Martyrdom means that we live for Christ as stewards of liberty. Stewards of liberty. Hey, martyrdom is a way of life even if we are free. If we are free from threat, if we are free to engage in our religious liberties, then let us do so robustly. Let those whose lives are strangled by persecution and oppression, let them look and know that somewhere, at some time, their brothers and sisters are living for them. You can take their life, you can take their voice, but I will raise mine. Let us not have their hopes dashed by hiding and ease offering an occasional pence just to get by. Let us steward these liberties. Let Let us exercise them robustly. Maximize what you have received. Maternity means living for Christ like it matters. Like it matters. See, the church throughout history often thrives... Or is more effective when she's under threat. Why is that? Well, people make all kinds of stuff up, but here's the deal: the church thrives when she's under threat because it makes us more bold. We engage, and we are more willing to engage in sacrifice. We take things more seriously. I, I love everybody, and nobody take this personal. But you know, the church across America is in the midst of angst because of Super Bowl Sunday. There are churches across the, across North America that are trying, that rearrange their services because of Super Bowls. Yeah, it happens. And if, if you all are like, "Oh, that's too bad," you're all saying that because the Seahawks aren't playing. <laughs> Seahawks were playing, you'd be like, oh, I I can't, I'm feeling, (coughs) can't make it to church today, dab. Not feeling well. Got to get my wings ready. It is the darn truth. You think, and I just think, and I want to smile big because I love everybody. I want everybody to be happy and have a good time. But you think Smyrna would care about the games? The embracing martyrdom means we live for Christ like it really matters. Even if nobody's threatening us. When the church lives under threat, she takes things more seriously. She's more holy. She's more disciplined. When the church lives under threat, she's also more joyful. Because she selects what she complains about. She's more gracious, more grateful, more careful, more loving, more generous, and less wasteful. When the church lives under threat, we prioritize, we are radical. But we need not live under threat in order to live that way. All we need to do is live for Christ like it matters. This is embracing martyrdom. We choose the way of martyrdom because we, in order to totally abandon ourselves to the name and to the cause of Christ. In second service, I'm going to read you a story of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who was the bishop of Smyrna. If you missed it today, you can either stick around or watch it broadcast next time around. But it's a story of the outside of the of scripture, it's the earliest narrative of martyrdom that we have. And I'll just tell you what happens is that they bring Polycarp in before the stadium. And the Romans are there and, and, and the Jews are there. And they say, This is the troubler. This is the teacher of Asia. He's the one who's causing the trouble, teaching people to follow Christ. And they look at him and they see that he's an old, aged, aged man. And they say to him, deny Christ. Just say, away with the atheists. And by atheists, they meant Christians. And Polycarp looks around at the stadium full of pagans and he goes like this. Away with the atheists. And they say, deny him. Just deny him. They look at this old man and they in mercy, they say, just deny him. We don't want to do this to you. And he said, I have served my king for 85 years, and he's never done me wrong. Why would I deny him now? And then he smiled, <laughs> and the crowd began to bring wood and surround him, and they were going to nail him to a, a post to hold him there. He said, you don't have to nail me. My, the same love for Christ that has kept me to him is going to keep me standing right here. You don't have to nail me here. Bring it. Bring it to my words. And see so while he offered up a prayer unto Christ, and then the crowd came and they now this is and and, and they 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 the the, the word of the, the testimony of those who watched they set that thing on fire to burn him alive. But the flame began to billow out like a sail around him and wouldn't touch him. And then listen, and instead of the smell of burning flesh there was a fragrance. <laughs> because he said, Don't don't fear. And then in the most mystical way that I can't possibly understand, they, they said, that's it, that's enough, kill him. So they came and they, they rammed him through with spears and blood poured out. But this is the testimony of those that were there that shocked them. Blood flowed out until it put out all the fire. And they, were, they stood in awe at this one. Who lived, who embraced martyrdom. Church, Jesus is going to, I doubt, Jesus is going to ask nobody in this room today to get burned alive. In fact, he probably won't ask you for much. But I suspect there's a lot more robustness that we can do. I suspect that you and I can live boldly, faithfully. Unafraid, like it matters. Let's stand together.